Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As of the release of this episode, we've only got a few hours left for our current submissions period. I'd like to thank everyone who submitted the level of creativity, passion, and downright terrifying imagination out there never ceases to amaze me. And I'm so proud that there are so many talented authors who choose to submit their work to Tales to Terrify. I will honestly never get tired of seeing tweets from authors being excited to share their stories will be featured on our podcast. It's an absolute honor to produce them, to bring these macabre masterpieces by such a diverse range of talented horror voices to life, and then dribble them into your ears each week. This community is truly incredible, and we're so proud to be part of it. But while the door to our full-length submissions swings shut once more, a window remains open. We continue to accept and encourage submissions of flash fiction. That's anything under 2,000 words. We're switching up our process a little, though, so just a heads up if you've submitted flash before. We've decided to keep our Moksha submission platform open for Flash rather than just accept them through email, to make things a little simpler for everyone involved. But where to go for details hasn't changed. 
TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. So keep those bite-sized tales of terror coming. Thanks this week goes out to our newest patron, Drew Nasty. By sheer coincidence, you'll also have a chance to hear him on the first story in this week's episode. Thanks so much for the support, Drew, and for joining us on our Discord, too, which has continued to pick up steam over the last several weeks. If you'd like to support the show and have a chance to join the discussion on Discord yourself, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify and sign up. Thanks also this week goes to RyRy0882 for sharing your review of the show and your juggernaut progress through the many years of stories that have brought us to this point. That's a heck of an undertaking. Sharing a review of the show is a great free way to help support our podcast, and we appreciate all of the feedback we receive. And if that wasn't enough, there's another way you can support our show right now, which is to vote for Tales to Terrify as Best Fiction Podcast in this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. We're on the ballot, and all we need is your votes. Head over to podcastawards.com, find the fiction category, and make your mark beside Tales to Terrify. No blood sacrifice required. It's a small step that could really help us bring awareness and enjoyment of our dark tales to new ears. Again, that's podcastawards.com, and you'll find us in the fiction category. Now, let's see if we can't give you a fresh reason to vote for us. Let's dive into our fiction for tonight. Our first story this evening comes from Robert A. Francis. Rob Francis writes short fantasy and horror, and his stories have appeared in magazines such as The Arcanist, Apparition Lit, Metamorphosis, Tales to Terrify, and Weird Horror. Rob has also contributed stories to several anthologies, including Dead Steam by Grim and Grimmer Books and Under the Full Moon's Light by Owl Hollow Press. He is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association. Rob also lurks on Twitter at RAF Urbanico. Listen with me, children of the night, to Robert A. Francis's This Most Fertile Earth, first published by Telltale Press, December 2019. It's hard to keep finding excuses to spend time in the barn. I tell Maggie I'm setting out rat traps or treating the timbers or even just fixing the boards. Hell, I've even considered saying I'm composing poems. Anything to sit up here in the loft with the 12 gauge loaded and ready. The quiet semi-darkness of the barn is conducive to thinking. And I can't help going over all that's happened these last weeks. While I do, I make sure to keep the Remington pointed at the tarpaulin, and whatever it is that's underneath. 
Sometimes I wish I could put Godly under the gun. Other times I just wish I'd never gone to the June Town Hall meeting or to the Milligan's farm. That I'd just stayed home with Maggie instead. Too late now, for damn sure. And I'm partly responsible, no denying that. I could just as easily have let it all alone. So, I sit here, waiting, thinking about young Danny. Damn Godly and all the others. And damn myself, too. It's all any of us deserve. Town hall meetings come round about once a month. They're a chance to do a bit of business, compare notes, see who's doing what. And gossip, of course. But there was only one real item of business on the June 53 meeting. The Milligan Farm. This drought's lasted most two damn years now, said Vincent Godley, standing to make his point. My soil's dry as a witch's tit. Why is Milligan's crop growing? We've all seen it. Corn as high as you like. And him with no more water than anyone else. Nor money for fertilizer. It's not right. I stood. Right or not, it's as it is. Have you asked him, Vince? Stood on his porch, knocked on his door, and just asked him? Godly cursed. Of course I have, Jim. He lies, says it's all down to hard work and hard praying. And that's just a load of horse apples. He's a secret, and he's not sharing. Now, we were all short of money then, and I know that Vince Godley was shorter than most, and that was partly behind all this protesting. But I'll admit that I was pretty curious, too. Why did Milliken's maze grow so beautiful and true? What did he know that no one else did? Maybe you ain't asked him right said Lucius Wexler from over the east side of town. Maybe someone with a little more diplomacy should go. Godly waved at me. What do you think, Jim? He likes you. If he's a secret, he should share it. We're a community after all. I shrugged. I'll give it a try if you're willing to drive me down there. Pickups in the shop. That was a half-truth. It should have been in the shop, but I couldn't afford to get it fixed. Great, we'll both go. And so we did. Next morning, Godly picked me up in his truck, and we made the 40-minute run to the Milligan place. If I could turn back the clock, it'd be to that morning. I'd tell Godly to just mind his own and send him packing. But then I think on Milligan's crop, and what might have been. And well, I just don't know. Too much time in the barn, I guess. Too much time with only a shotgun for company. Bruce Milligan was a taciturn man for the most part, and his wife, Sarah, a little better. By and large, they didn't welcome visitors, so not many folks would make the effort to stop by without they had to for business. I'd always rubbed along fine with Bruce, even if he was hard work though I hadn't had any cause to visit for a few months. As we drove up the long track to the farm, truck windows down to get a breeze in the blistering heat, I was amazed to see how well his corn was getting on. I whistled. If this is all from prayers, the man's a saint. Godly just grunted. He'd been in a foul mood for the whole drive. I suppose their boy must be getting on for ten years old now. That's flown past. 
Danny? Godley wiped the sweat from his forehead with the back of his arm. I feel sorry for that kid. Imagine having a paw like Bruce. And his ma's not altogether there. You remember that fire? Yep, I reckon stillbirth's a hard thing, though, Vince. And we don't know that she did set the house aflame herself, not for sure. Bruce has never said. We reached the front of the farmhouse, and Godley pulled the truck to a stop, dust billowing around us. Bruce Milligan stepped out to the porch even before we climbed out of the truck, leaving the door wide open. I could see Sarah hovering nervously inside the house and tipped my hat at them both. Milligan stood in his shirt and denim coveralls, a fresh-lit corona between his teeth, looking every inch the poor but honest Midwestern farmer. Morning, Bruce. Another scorcher. He shook his head. It's not a good time, boys. My Danny's laid up in bed with fever. We've had to call for Dr. Henshaw. He'll be driving up presently. Godly waved the man's protestations away. This won't take a minute, Milligan. The town's had a confab. Your farm's the only one for hundreds of miles that's got any crop worth spitting at. And it's not just good, it's superb. What's your secret? Whatever it is, keeping it to yourself ain't fair. Good topsoil and humble prayers, boys, that's all. This most fertile earth's the honest reward of a pious man. Godly swore. We ain't buying it, Milligan, not a word. And we're not leaving till we get the facts. Milligan sighed and looked back into the house before pulling the door shut. Let's talk outside, he said quietly. Sarah's worried about Danny. I don't want to make her nerves even worse. So we walked, across the yard and a little way toward those great stands of corn, ears shining white gold in the sunlight. There's no great secret, boys, no conspiracy. Last year, my soil was just as dry as yours, remember? We did, dusty as a rattlesnake. Got so bad, even the well went dry. So a couple months back, I climbed down, thought maybe I'd try to sink it a little deeper. Only put the auger in a couple of feet before water came bubbling up. We passed Milligan's barn and chicken coops, each of us sweating now in the heat, our feet kicking up a cloud. Except it wasn't water. It was thick and black. Viscous, that's the word. Oil, I thought at first, of course, but I soon realized it wasn't that either. Worse luck. Anyway, it was soaking my boots, so I climbed out, thinking on whether to call the USDA or someone, but it was late and I thought best to sleep on it. We reached the edge of the yard and approached the cornfields, Milligan pointing ahead. He was leading us toward the well. Next morning, I went back to take another look, and I could see every single boot print in the soil I made on my way in the evening before. Everywhere I'd trodden that black stuff, Sprouts were shooting up. The corn seeds I'd planted these last years waking up at last, all in the perfect shape of my size tens. Godly and I glanced at each other, but said nothing. So that's when I realized it was something special. I rushed to the well, and it was half full. I drew up a bucket to take a closer look. Well, I tell you, that stuff wasn't quite black after all but the darkest red I ever saw. And there were pale white grubs in there swimming around. 
I started filling buckets and spreading the stuff over my fields. And the corn came up, fast. Godly cursed under his breath. Sounds like a goddamn secret to me. Manna from heaven, is it? We reached the well. Godly and I looked down, but all was black in the shadows. Milligan wound down a bucket. After it came back up and he dipped it into the trough that led from the well mouth to another bucket that stood on the ground, we could see that the liquid was indeed a deep burgundy and that it roiled with fat white maggots. My gut turned a little at the smell, a heavy organic stink that reminded me of the time my old man had taken me to a slaughterhouse when I was a kid. Once it was in the nostrils, you couldn't get rid of it. So what is it, Bruce? Godly bent down close to the bucket, less concerned about the stench than I was. Milligan shrugged. Lord knows. I figured at first I'd struck some kind of animal nest or egg, but then the stuff just kept coming out, even as I emptied the well, and with the grubs. I should have told the folks at the USDA, but I was worried they'd take it away or even confiscate the farm. You know how things are. We did. The government was always trying to put its nose where it wasn't wanted. You need to tell somebody, though, Bruce, I said. Or people keep wondering about this place, and you. Godly nodded. Maybe even share it, if there's plenty. I will, once I've harvested this first crop. The corn's just about ripe, and early, too. I picked some this morning. We always have the first taste. Sarah boiled up some, and we'll have it with melted butter. Bruce! Bruce! Sarah's calls floated from the farmhouse porch, high in the still, hot air. Milligan waved. Over here, sweetheart, he turned to us. She frets terribly, pay her no mind. Sarah started to hurry over. Bruce, I said, who sank this well, you? No, my grandpa, long before I was born. And he never said anything about this, nothing? No, why? I dipped a stick into the bucket and lifted it to watch the liquid slowly drip. Flies had started to gather round the bucket edge. I tipped a little onto the ground and observed the grubs begin to burrow into the desiccated soil. I think it's blood, Bruce. Some kind of blood. Godly snorted. Horse apples, Jim. How could that be possible? I had no answer. Only more questions. Something buried. Something big. I stared up into the wide blue as if it might offer up an answer. Bruce! Sarah arrived, panting heavily. Yes, dear? I can't find Danny. He's not in his bed, and I've been all around the house. Miss Milligan was still in her dressing gown and looked like she'd been ill herself, trembling, her eyes ringed with black. She wrung her hands as she stood, as if washing them over and over. He can't have gone far, love. He got the flu? I smiled at Sarah reassuringly. Milligan shrugged. No idea. They seemed fine this morning, had his oatmeal and some fresh corn, then took to bed with the sweats. Maybe the corn's not ready yet. You have any yourself? Not yet. He'll be all right. If that's all it is, might be he just needs to bring it back. Milligan turned to Sarah. You check the bathroom? 
Of course. Godley rolled his shoulders. We'll help you find the boy. Where'd you last see him? Sarah swallowed. Well, I checked on him about an hour ago. He was sleeping. We all went looking. Milligan searched the barn and his other outbuildings, while Godley and I started walking the edge of the cornfields looking for any sign of disturbance. The corn was even more impressive close to, no doubt about it. Tall and green, the ears sunshine yellow and just about sweating with nutrition. They looked ready enough to eat. I hope he turns up soon. Sarah looks just about fit to burst there, Jim. Those strings get any tighter and she'll snap, no doubt at all. I put a hand out. There. A few broken corn stems marked where someone had pushed into the field. It was too clumsy to be an animal, but the marks fit perfectly with a young boy, especially one in a delirium. We hurried in, following the trail of bent and broken stalks. We must have walked halfway into the field before we found anything, and what we did find wasn't what I was expecting at all. Danny's clothes. A scuffed old pair of shoes, striped pajamas, and a sun hat as if he'd got out of bed, thrown them on, and then discarded them once he'd reached his destination. But what was his destination? Jim? Godly pointed further into the corn, but I couldn't see anything. What? On the ground. And there it was, a large purple sack lying on the soil. I stepped closer. It wasn't a sack, not really. It was some kind of pod about four feet long, the surface thick and leathery, fat in the middle and tapered at either end. It looked for all the world like a giant bug pupa. I had an odd sense of unreality, like everything around me had slipped so that the real world was just beyond my grasp and I was stuck someplace else. From Godley's face, I could tell he felt the same. Jesus. I crouched by the pupa. Inside, liquid seemed to ripple gently. At one end, just below the surface, I was sure I could just about make out the eyes, nose, and mouth of a young boy. Christ, Danny's in there. Godley came across and peered at the pupa to see for himself. His eyes widened. Well, let's get him out. He fished for his pocket knife. Wait, wait, just a minute now. When a pillar makes a pupa, it kind of melts inside. And if you crack it open before it's time, it dies. If, Jesus, if Danny is in there and we open it, we might kill him. Footsteps sounded behind us, and we turned as the Millicans pushed through the corn. Sarah gave a cry when she saw Danny's clothes on the ground. Then Bruce saw our faces. What's happened? Well, I said, but didn't know how to go on. Godly ran a trembling hand through his hair and nodded at the pupa. We think Danny's in there. Milligan's eyes screwed up in disbelief, but he walked tentatively over to the pod. 
he gasped. Sarah spun him round, her face contorted with fury. You, I warned you not to put that foul muck all over the fields. It ain't natural. All this crop, it's poisoned, Bruce, poisoned. And it's done something to Danny. But that ain't possible, Sarah. It just ain't. Milligan looked confused for a moment. His face paled and he winced in pain, then let out a great whoosh of breath that he couldn't quite seem to rein in. I knew what was happening, because I had seen it with my old man when he passed. Heart attack. Sarah, I rushed to grab Bruce and stop him toppling. It's his heart. But she just turned and ran. Godly made to go after her, but I stopped him. Wait, Vince, help me get him back to the house. Together, we carried Milligan back through the corn and lay him on the farmhouse porch. I'd best call for help. Godly trailed off as he looked out over the fields. I followed his gaze. Smoke. And then, flame. I caught a glimpse of Sarah, flitting between stands of corn, a red jerry can of gasoline in her hand. Godly swore. She'll burn the entire place to the ground. Danny. I ran back into the corn, not waiting to see if Godly was following. Smoke was already heavy in the air. When I reached the pupa, I heard the crackle of flames nearby. I slid both hands under the thing and lifted. It was solid and heavy as a couple sacks of grain. I staggered, smoke stinging my eyes and rasping my throat. When I broke free of the crop, Godly was staring at the field with tears in his eyes. I carefully placed the pupa on the ground, then sat and caught my breath as best I could. Milligan, I finally managed. Godly shook his head. Gone. Sarah, in there. The field was a conflagration now, a vision of hell itself. You call for help? I called, much good it will do. I nodded towards the pupa. My hand still shook from the weight of it. What do we do with that? Let the authorities figure it out. Now wait a minute, I said. What'll they do? Have it away to some laboratory somewhere? Cut it up to see what's inside. Dissect whatever's left of poor Danny. Might be best for him. His mom and pa are both gone for sure. His home too, probably. If he's even alive in there. I think we should at least find out. So what's your plan? Bring it to my place, I said. I'll keep an eye on it until we know one way or the other. Godly shrugged but helped me lift the pupa into his pickup, where we hid it under some of the old tarpaulin he kept there. As the day crept towards noon, we sat on the porch and watched the fields burn. I sit here in the barn as much as I can. Maggie doesn't know anything about Danny. She's too sentimental on account of us not having kids of our own and wouldn't understand especially as I have no way of knowing what might need to be done in the end. They couldn't save the Milligan farm, of course. Godley and I got our story straight and told the fire department that we'd found the field burning when we arrived, Bruce dead on the porch and the house empty. That burned too, I'm sorry to say. 
The official verdict was that Bruce's heart had burst, and Sarah, who had a history of instability after all, had set the field alight in despair. Danny had tried to save her, but was sick and easily overcome. They found the charred remnants of the boy's shoes. His bones would turn up eventually. Three days after it was all over, Godley and I drove back to the farm and filled in the well, choked it with soil and ash from the fields, just to be sure. I'd wanted to do it straight away, but Godley said to wait in case anyone official was to come snooping around. Sometimes I peel back the tarpaulin to look at the pupa. Danny's face is still just below the surface, except it doesn't much look like Danny anymore. The skull is angular, the mouth too small, the eyes too big and bug-like. When Danny, or whatever Danny is now, finally emerges, I'll be ready. Probably I'll need to kill him, or it. And that'll be a mercy of sorts, an end to the whole sorry thing, perhaps. But maybe, just maybe, something of Danny will still be in there, scared and confused. A young boy deserving of life. In many ways, that's the more frightening prospect. I'll find out soon enough. This morning, I noticed a few cracks in the pupa's hide. Tiny hairline fractures, almost nothing. But they are there. Come what may, when this is done, it still won't quite be over. I need to pay Godly a visit. Yesterday, Lucius Wexler stopped by. He was curious about the Milligan fire, but also fishing to see if we'd learned anything about his fabulous corn. On account of Godly's sprouting so well these last few days he said. And I wonder, how much of that unearthly blood meal could Godly have ferried from the well to his farm in those days before we filled it in? Buckets and tins and cans stacked in the back of his pickup. Enough, I'll bet. Godly's got some questions to answer. I'll go ask them and I'll take the Remington along for good measure. Maybe I'll even take Danny, too. That was Robert A. Francis's This Most Fertile Earth as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew has always been a storyteller, from telling improv tales around a campfire as a kid to running games of Dungeons and Dragons in the present day. Texas-based chemical engineer by day, audiobook narrator and romance book boyfriend by night, he enjoys all genres of fiction and nonfiction, and always has some sort of audiobook playing on his phone. However, being a bit of a sadist, horror stories are his passion, and he takes every chance he can get to play villains, creeps, weirdos, and monsters. You can often catch him narrating while streaming his recording sessions on The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Thank you, Andrew. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story tonight comes from Jeff Ronan. Jeff Ronan is a New York-based writer, actor, and podcaster. His writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Dread Central, Bards and Sages Quarterly, Sci-Fi Journal, and City River Tree. His play, Bunkmates, was winner of the 2019 Samuel French OOB Festival and is now published and licensed by Concord Theatricals. For more, visit jeffronan.com. Children of the Night, join me for Jeff Ronan's Dog, a Tales to Terrify original. Dog is a good dog. The large man says so, most of the time anyway. And when the large man is happy, dog is happy. It used to be easy to keep the large man happy. Large man gives a command, dog obeys. Dog obeys, dog gets treats. Treats are dog's favorite thing. But lately it's been harder and harder to keep the large man happy. Bath time is one of dog's least favorite things. Dog hears the click of the key in the lock and the squeak of the door opening. And before Dog can hide, the large man is already in the doorway with the hose. A powerful stream of water hits Dog like a fist with so much force that it drives him back into the wall. The water pressure is always too strong, and it hurts Dog when it hits his face and throat and crotch. Dog always cowers in a ball until long after bath time is over, waiting until he hears the click of the door locking again and the heavy footsteps of the large man walking away. Only then will Dog uncurl, his naked body dripping and shivering, and his long, tangled hair plastered to his face and neck. The one good thing about bath time is that, when it's finished, Dog gets a small treat, 
a drumstick or two, sometimes a chicken breast or hamburger, depending on what the large man has laying around. Dog likes small treats, but big treats are his favorite. He just doesn't like what he has to do to get them. Dog's room is small and simple. An old mattress on the ground, a flat pillow, and a few raggedy sheets and blankets piled on top. A grimy toilet in the corner. An unfinished ceiling revealing thick pipes jutting every which way. When Dog was just a pup, the large man would sometimes give him paper and crayons. This had been long before the playroom, back when Pup didn't know there were rooms outside his room. Back then, Pup would color all day. Some of his drawings still hang on the wall, years later, yellowed with age. But once Pup grew into Dog, the large man stopped letting him play with crayons and paper. Once Pup became Dog, he was only allowed to play pretend. Pretend is the one thing Dog hates more than bath time. The large man says Dog will be more than just a dog. That one day, Dog will be a show dog in the movies. The only movies Dog has seen are the ones the large man shows him. The movies are only a few minutes long and are the same, more or less. There are always two of them, the show dog and the bad man. The large man always points out which is which to Dog, though it becomes clear by the end. In the movies, the show dog will fight the bad men. There will be yelling and blood, and the movies always end with the bad men on the ground. Sometimes the bad men look unconscious. Sometimes they even look dead. Doesn't that look real? The large man asked the first time he showed Dog a movie. Such a good show dog that one is, he chuckled. Dog is used to pretend now, but it took a long time to understand. The first few games of pretend, he would get confused and the large man would hold Dog's head in his hands afterwards. He would look in Dog's eyes and say, There, there, no need to cry. It's just pretend. Then he'd dry Dog's tears with his handkerchief, wiping some of the blood off with it, and give Dog his big treat. A nice, juicy steak. Steak is Dog's favorite treat. Whenever Dog plays pretend, it's always the same. The click of the key in the lock, the squeak of the door opening the large man looming in the doorway, and the silent walk down the hall to the playroom. There isn't much inside the playroom, just a sturdy iron pole in the center running from the floor to the ceiling, and a speaker attached high up on the wall so that Dog can hear the large man while inside. There are also the stains, of course, but Dog tries not to pay attention to those. Inside, the bad man is always there already, waiting for Dog. Each time Dog comes into the playroom, the bad man is different. Sometimes they're older. Sometimes they're closer to Dog's age. Sometimes they're bigger, like the large man. Other times they're skinny, like Dog. Every once in a while, it's a bad woman, but usually it's a bad man. The bad man is always chained securely to the pole and gagged. They always try to say things during pretend, but Dog isn't allowed to take their gag out, or the large man gets upset. He says it's one of the most important parts of pretend, and that if Dog doesn't follow his instructions to the letter, he'll never get to be a show dog. But over time, Dog has grown unsure that he even wants to be a show dog anymore. The first time Dog played pretend, the bad man had bright orangey hair and small glasses. The left lens had a series of small spiderweb cracks running through the glass, and a large painful-looking bruise marked the man's left eye. He was naked from the waist up, 
and a few similar bruises colored his stomach and ribs. As he saw Dog, the man's eyes widened. He began yelling something, the gag in his mouth turning it into gibberish. Dog stared, confused. In the movies, the bad men were never chained up. The bad man and the show dog would both fight, sometimes with their fists, sometimes with knives or other weapons. Dog whimpered, and the small speaker crackled to life. All right then, the large man announced, his voice echoing throughout the room. Let's go for a take, shall we? Dog lowered himself onto all fours, just like they'd practiced. And scene one, action. Dog darted forward and began attacking the bad man's limbs. That was one of the rules of pretend. During scene one, you were only supposed to touch the arms and legs. As Dog rained down blows, the bad man tried to tuck his legs under, out of the way. Dog grabbed his left ankle and yanked the leg straight. Come on, come on, the speaker system growled impatiently. Show him what a good show dog you are. While holding the bad man's ankle steady with his left hand, Dog made a fist with his right and brought it down hard on the bad man's knee. The leg bent in with an awful crunch, and the bad man began screaming through his gag, his orangey hair flopping back and forth. Dog scurried back, hating the noises the bad man was making. And cut! The large man's voice boomed, and the speaker abruptly shut off. After a moment, the door to the playroom swung open, and a dog raced out. As he looked back, Dog saw that the orangey-haired bad man was weeping, crumpled into a ball just as Dog would do during bath time. <laughs> he was a good actor, wasn't he? laughed the large man as he dropped the bloody steak into Dog's bowl. Dog was wrapped up in his blanket, the same blanket he'd had since he was a pup, and silently watched the large man. To Dog, the orangey-haired man didn't act like the bad men in the movies. For starters... He couldn't fight back. That seemed wrong to Dog, but the sight of the stake made the image of the crying bad man slip away. The large man hadn't fed Dog in two days because show dogs can't perform on a full stomach. The hunger made it difficult for Dog to think, and his mouth watered as he waited for the command. After what felt like forever, the large man pursed his fat lips together and let out a short but incredibly loud whistle. Dog leapt from his mattress and buried his face in the bowl, his long hair pooling out on the floor around him. The hot smell of the steak was incredible, and as he tore chunks off the steaming hunk of meat, he decided the playroom hadn't been that bad. After all, it had just been pretend. It had been a long time since the first pretend, maybe years. Dog had no way of keeping track of the days. Even if he had a clock or a calendar, the large man never taught him to tell time. The large man never taught Dog much except to pretend. Dog sometimes tried to remember what life had been like before the countless games of pretend, before the large man, before the small locked room he called home, if there had even been anything before that. It hurt Dog's head to try to remember. Dog heard the shuffle of the large man's steps and the jangle as he pawed through his keys. Then the familiar click of the key in the lock, the squeak of the door, and the silent walk to the playroom. Dog knew the routine, but as the large man pushed him into the playroom and locked the heavy door shut behind him, Dog sensed that something was different. This bad man wasn't like all of the others. The bad men usually shrieked when they saw Dog. They screamed and jabbered, 
yanking themselves against the chains, securing them to the pole, trying to get away. They'd sometimes try to play pretend back, kicking at dog with their legs or scratching if dog wasn't careful and got too close to their hands. This bad man, however, didn't pull away from dog. As dog waited for the large man's voice through the speaker, this man looked coolly into dog's eyes, studying him. This bad man had a large, dark scar that started at his forehead and snaked down his temple, ending at the corner of his mouth. It looked like an old wound, compared to the fresh cuts that marked his face and bare chest. Hi there, the scarred man said, though through his gag it sounded like, He then glanced down at the gag in his mouth and back up to Dog as if to say, Can you help me with this? Dog was confused. Dog wasn't supposed to take the gag off of the bad men. It was one of the rules of pretend. But technically they hadn't started pretend yet. Dog looked to the speaker mounted on the wall, but no commands came from it. Just a faint, crackly buzzing. As the scarred man watched, Dog carefully padded forward, sniffing at the man. Very slowly, Dog reached up and slipped a finger between the gag and the man's cheek. The front of the gag was soaked through with saliva, and as he pulled the gag out, the man's wet tongue brushed against Dog's fingers. <sighs> so, you're Teddy's pet, huh? The scarred man asked, a viscous line of bloody spit dribbling from his mouth. The one everyone talks about. Don't cross Teddy, or I'll sick the dog on you. Dog remained silent. The scarred man studied him with curious eyes. You can't even talk, can you? The man realized before letting out a strained laugh. <laughs> that sick son of a bitch. The buzzing static from the speaker rose in volume, but still no command came from it. Dog looked at the speaker, part of him hoping it would stay silent, and a small part hoping to hear the large man's voice. At least Dog knew what he was supposed to do when he was given a command. Hey, can you understand me? The scarred man called, and Dog swung his attention back to the chained man. You understand what I'm saying? Dog nodded dumbly and wrapped his arms around himself. Dog was starting to not feel good. The bad men weren't supposed to be like this. Pretend wasn't supposed to be like this. You help me get out of here, and I'll get you whatever you want, kid the scarred man coaxed, his fixed smile revealing a missing tooth. You want money? Drugs? You name it. My brother will take care of it. Hey, kid, you hearing me? The door to the playroom suddenly banged open, and the large man stepped in, his girth filling the doorframe. He was breathing heavily, an ugly purple vein pulsing in his forehead, looking not unlike the bad man's scar. Dog instinctively dropped down to all fours, making himself as small as he could. The hell is this? The large man barked. I've been yelling through the speaker. <laughs> Might want to get the old equipment there tested, Teddy. The scarred man grinned. Moving with surprising swiftness, the large man crossed quickly over to the pole, gripped the gag which lay impotently around the scarred man's neck, and yanked it up over his head. As he started to ball the gag up, the scarred man licked his lips nervously. Hey, look, Teddy, let's work something out here, the scarred man said, forcing a casual grin. After all, we don't want my bro. Whatever the man was going to say, it was cut off by the large man stuffing the gag into his mouth. He jammed the gag in deeper until the scarred man began to choke, and then he stepped away, 
watching as the bound man wheezed air in through his nostrils. Get him, dog, the large man growled. Dog looked up at him blankly, and when he didn't move, the large man gave him a painful kick in the ribs. Come on now, scene one, go! Dog looked at the scarred man, who was finally starting to look like the bad man usually did. His eyes were wide, and his chest was rising and falling rapidly as he gasped for air. Dog stepped closer, and the man leaned away, pulling against the chain attaching him to the pole. Dog still didn't like how any of this was going, but at least it resembled pretend. Are you deaf? screamed the large man. Scene one! he bellowed, and as if suddenly given an electric jolt, Dog began beating his hands wildly against the bad man's arms and legs. Scene two, the large man commanded, spittle flying from his mouth. He circled as Dog moved on to the next scene and pretend, the body. As the scarred man gave a muffled yelp, twisting himself away as best he could, Dog slammed his fists into the man, pummeling his chest and stomach as hard as he could. Dog wanted this round of pretend to be over with, and the thought of curling up on his bed with his big treat made Dog attack with even greater fury. Scene three, roared the large man, red in his face. With his left hand, Dog grabbed the scarred man by the hair to keep him steady, and then he cocked his right fist back and sent it rocketing forward, crashing with a wet thud into soft flesh and hard bone. As he continued to hit the scarred man's face over and over, Dog heard an awful crack as the jaw broke. Hopefully this was the last scene. Pretend usually only went until scene one or two, but sometimes he had to do scene three and every once in a while, he would have to go all the way to the grand finale, howled the large man, spit flying from his fat lips. Dog looked at him pleadingly, but he knew there was no other way for pretend to end. Dog looked back at the scarred man, whose face now bore the consistency of ground beef, a sometimes small treat. The man was unconscious, and his head drooped heavily against his chest, the slight whistle of air traveling in and out of his nostrils, the only evidence he was alive. Dog gently lifted the man's head up with both hands, the same way the large man would sometimes do with Dog when he was confused and crying, and with a single, swift motion, Dog twisted the scarred man's head to the side as hard as he could. After a moment of resistance, Dog heard a sickening pop. As he let go of the man's head, it dropped down again, this time at a horribly crooked angle. That's a good dog, the large man said as he wiped his wet lips with his handkerchief. A good show dog, he corrected, leading dog back to his room. Someone earned their big treat tonight, didn't they? Dog lay on his mattress later that night, the steak sitting heavily in his stomach. He looked up at the low ceiling of his room, at the pipe snaking maze-like across. He thought about what the scarred man had said and how little of it dog had understood. As Dog drifted into a fitful, restless sleep, he made a wish to whoever might be listening to never have to play pretend again. The large man didn't show up the next day, or the day after that. Hour after hour, Dog watched the keyhole, waiting for the familiar sound of the click, but nothing ever came. As the days passed, Dog pulled on the door handle and beat his fists against the door, howling to no avail. After almost a week, maybe less, maybe more? Dog was terribly, terribly hungry. Dog lay on his bed, almost motionless, and stared at the door. Why had the large man left him here? Why had he been abandoned? Footsteps. 
Dog perked up at the noise, though they seemed much lighter than the large man's usual shuffle. These footsteps sounded like they belonged to multiple people. As the footsteps stopped outside his door, Dog waited for the familiar click of the key in the lock. Instead, the doorknob twisted uselessly a few times as the people outside attempted to get in. Door's locked, an unfamiliar voice said. What do you think? Better let the boss decide, replied another equally unfamiliar voice. With great effort, Dog sat up in bed, listening intently. The footsteps began to retreat until they eventually faded away. Dog was too weak to worry about the strange men and whoever the boss was that they mentioned. Dog lay back down on his bed, and though he didn't mean to, he soon drifted off to sleep. Sometime later, Dog was awakened by the familiar click of the key in the lock, and the door squeaked open part way. A short man peeked his head in. At the sight of Dog, he snaked the small gun he was holding around the doorframe, aiming it directly at him. Dog had never seen a gun in real life, only in the movies he'd watched, and he looked at it with curiosity. What's going on? A smooth voice asked from somewhere behind the short man. Some naked guy in here, the short man answered, and after eyeing Dog a moment, added, Looks like shit. Let me see him, the other voice replied, and then a well-dressed man pushed into the room past the short man. He wore a perfectly fitted suit, a swirl of dark purple cloth poking out from his breast pocket. His hair was slicked almost flat against his scalp, and his shiny black shoes made a light clacking sound as he walked. He looked Dog over, and then turned back to the short man, eyeing his gun. Put that away. But boss, the short man began to protest. Now, ordered the well-dressed man. The short man sighed and put the weapon away, but he eyed Dog warily. The well-dressed man stepped further into the room, studying Dog with fascination. He doesn't even look old enough to drink. You wouldn't hurt a fly, would you? Dog looked up at being addressed directly. He could barely think straight, so he just gave a small shake of his head. Teddy's dog, the well-dressed man mused. You're something of a legend in our line of business. He turned back to the short man. When did you pick up Teddy? Monday. No, uh, late Sunday, said the short man, correcting himself. The well-dressed man turned back to Dog a thoughtful expression on his face. You been here all by yourself this week? he asked. Dog gave a small nod. You must be pretty hungry. Dog nodded again, struggling to keep his head up. The well-dressed man turned back. Cough it up, he said, holding out a hand. The short man stared at him and shrugged, as if confused. Come on, the well-dressed man sighed with a hint of annoyance. You've always got something on you. Give it here. The short man rolled his eyes, dug into the inner pocket of his jacket, and pulled out a wrapped candy bar. He tossed it over to the well-dressed man and then crossed his arms, petulantly leaning against the doorframe. The well-dressed man peeled the wrapper back and held it up to Dog. The chocolatey smell wafted into Dog's nostrils, and he leaned in closer to the man, wary of threat. The man's eyes showed no hint of danger, only pity and Dog snatched the candy bar from him, shoving half of it into his mouth. Easy, easy, the well-dressed man warned, as Dog gnashed on the delicious treat. Don't want you to choke, kid. What are we doing here? The short man grumbled, clearly annoyed at being forced to give up his afternoon snack. What, are we taking him with us? 
He was being sarcastic, but the well-dressed man raised his eyebrows, considering. I suppose that's up to him, he said thoughtfully, holding a hand out to Dog. Let's see what Teddy thinks, shall we? Dog looked at the hand, unsure. He dropped the empty wrapper to the ground and slowly extended one hand forward. The well-dressed man gently clasped it and helped Dog to his feet. The candy bar had helped, but Dog still had very little energy and was grateful for the assistance. The well-dressed man led Dog down the hall and they stopped at the door to the playroom. The man thumbed through a set of keys, the same set the large man always kept on him, and upon finding the correct one, unlocked the door. As the door to the playroom swung open, Dog saw that the bad man chained to the pole was none other than the large man himself. It was clearly the large man, despite his face having been beaten into an almost unrecognizable, mushy pulp. He sat motionless in a small pool of blood. Someone's been playing pretend with him for a long time, Dog thought to himself. As if he'd said the words aloud, the large man snapped his head up. As he caught sight of Dog, his mouth gaped open and closed like a dying fish. That's... that's my dog, the large man sputtered in disbelief, droplets of blood flying from his swollen lips. Don't you dare... You shouldn't have touched Jamie, the well-dressed man cut him off. He was flashing an easy grin, but his eyes were cold and gray. So now I think it's time for you to go away. Not like this, begged the large man, tears rolling down his fat cheeks. He swung his attention over to Dog. You're my dog, you understand? You listen to me! Now, scene one, he commanded. Dog just stared at him. Come on, you dumb mutt. Dog took a step closer to the large man, and he instantly shut up. His swollen face had morphed into a look that Dog was only used to seeing from bad men, a look which implied pure terror. Dog could smell the fear coming off him in waves. Okay, 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 stammered the large man. This isn't pretend, all right? It's not pretend. If, if you hurt me... It'll be for real. You understand? Dog nodded slowly. He understood. Dog didn't want to play pretend ever again, not even with the large man. But he was still extraordinarily hungry. Not for a small treat, not even for a big treat. No, at this moment, Dog thought he would only be satisfied with a very large treat. Dog stepped in closer, and he must have been salivating, because the large man suddenly sucked in a lungful of air, shrieking with fear. Don't! The large man stuttered. Whatever you're thinking about doing, listen to me. I think your dog is done listening to you. The well-dressed man grinned, his eyes gleaming like twin pieces of ice. You're my son! The large man cried out. Henry! Henry! That's your name! You understand me? I'm your father, Henry. The large man wetted his lips with his thick tongue. Dog could practically hear the man's heart pounding in his enormous chest. I'm your father! The words were confusing to Dog, and he wanted him to stop speaking, so he leaned in and buried his teeth firmly into the large man's fleshy neck. No, wait! <laughs> shrieked the large man, and Dog jerked his head to the side. A hunk of meat ripped away, and blood sprayed across the playroom floor. As the large man continued screaming, 
Dog thought to himself, Henry, a good name for a dog. Henry lives a much different life nowadays. Henry lives in a large room and sleeps in a nice bed with freshly cleaned sheets and blankets. Henry wears clothes now and is learning to speak. Henry's bath time is now in a real tub and is so warm and peaceful that sometimes Henry never wants to get out. Henry has paper and crayons again, and Henry's walls are covered in new drawings. Henry crudely signs his name at the bottom of each drawing. Henry. Best of all, Henry doesn't have to play pretend anymore. The well-dressed man says Henry has a reputation, part of it based in rumor, part of it based very much in reality. And because of his reputation, any time the well-dressed man wants to intimidate someone, he only has to show them Henry and remind them of what Henry did back when he used to be dog. If the person still doesn't do what he wants, the well-dressed man makes up a few lies, terrible things that Henry had never done as dog. But everyone always believes him. And because everyone believes him, Henry never has to play pretend with any of them. There's only one problem. Henry doesn't like little treats anymore. And big treats haven't been enough either. Not since that day in the playroom with the large man. Now, Henry is only ever truly satisfied with large treats. The well-dressed man told Henry it wouldn't be a problem. In his business, there's always a large treat or two lying around in need of disposal. Henry likes the well-dressed man. He's one of the few people who understands Henry, who sees Henry for who he really is. He knows Henry is a good dog. That was Jeff Ronan's Dog, as read by Jesse Holt. Little is known about Jesse Holt, though rumors have circulated that he was found frozen within a 20,000-year-old ice formation during an Arctic oil drilling exploration. This is purely speculation, of course, as the official records state that the entire staff of the camp perished in what was described at the time as the most savage polar bear attack in history judging by the mutilated and partially consumed corpses that littered the snow. Strangely, no bear tracks were found. Today, Jesse is a voice actor and tour guide with a passion for travel, and he's always happy to meet new victims, um, friends. You can find him on Twitter at Jesse Holt Voice or on his website at jesseholtvoice.com. Thank you, Jesse. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content 
to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we weave waking nightmares with more Tales to Terrify. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.